but we are getting settled in. Uh, it's a marvel for me to watch my wife uh, put together our home. A little bit different in every place, but uh, so many similarities, and uh, it's a great place to be. Um, getting settled into Peachtree City, I got my Chick-fil-A app on my phone, and I was kind of wondering about this Chick-fil-A thing. Uh, Chick-fil-A, carriage lane, three syllables, begin with C, the last syllable, a long A. Which came first? <laughs> of course, I didn't even like Chick-fil-A about six, until about six months ago, and uh, there's something about the human condition in the first three or four times after I started to like it that I thought, you know, I'd really like some Chick-fil-A. It was on a Sunday. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning the ways of uh, North Georgia. There is a word on the streets about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is known, and uh, if you were to interview people, they would uh, let you know that uh, their basic understanding of Jesus is that he's compassionate, he's friendly, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he's almost a buddy. And if you were watching the Super Bowl last week, or if you've uh, caught up, kept up with this campaign, uh, those commercials tell us that Jesus gets us. And I know that some Christians have uh, dealt with that campaign with some ambivalence, you know, wondering, uh, what are we to make of this? I don't want to talk about that this morning, but I want to say that while none of those things are untrue, Jesus does in fact get us. In fact, the sympathy of Jesus is on display in the uh, letter or the sermon to the Hebrews. Uh, And it is certainly true that he's compassionate, friendly, forgiving, gracious, and uh, we can even call him a friend of sinners. We have a hymn uh, that heads in that direction. Uh, But all of that barely scratches the surface of Jesus. I'm serious, it barely scratches the surface. And there is a wealth that is contained in the scripture, and there is a wealth uh, contained uh, in this book of Hebrews uh, that we want to try and scratch our heads and dig into, hopefully with good, practical, personal benefit. That's always my hope um, when we open the word of God. So there are three things that I want to talk about this morning. One being uh, how the Bible is used. This is peripheral to the text, but one of the great things about the book of Hebrews is to watch how the Bible is being used or how it's being interpreted, how it's being handled. Uh, So I want to pay attention to that. Secondly, obviously, let's look at the person of Melchizedek. Uh, And then thirdly, let's ask the question of what good is that to us? Uh, So first, how how is the Bible being handled uh, in the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews or the sermon uh, to the Hebrews, different ways of understanding it? You know, a friend once complained to me uh, that there was a certain practice in the church uh, that hinged on, in his words, only one verse. You know, why do we do this when it's only one verse in the Bible? And in our conversation, I brought up the reality that the Apostle Paul seemingly builds the entire Christian faith on only one verse. Well, he does it a couple of times, two different verses. Uh, But as we looked at last week, in Genesis 15-7, which is an out-of-the-way kind of passage, Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness, is something that Paul blows up. 
in order to explain how the death and resurrection of Jesus mean that justification is by faith alone apart from works. And he does a a similar thing with an an even more out-of-the-way verse, and that's Habakkuk 2.4. The just will live by faith. You know, again, if you were reading Habakkuk, you might just skip right over that if you ever got to Habakkuk. But here the apostle takes this verse and builds on it uh, so that we have, well, everything else comes into focus. Uh, The joy of salvation, uh, the sacrificial atonement, the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Here's another, actually, that we've been looking at in Hebrews from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever. Uh, in the line of Melchizedek. Uh, But here, in some ways, the respect for Scripture goes even deeper, if I can put it that way. Because here in this passage, the writer has such a high regard for Scripture that even its silence is significant. Not only the little verses in which things are mentioned, but even the things that are not mentioned are used by the writer of Hebrews to make a point to, to the end of our understanding, uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. So in this section, a passage from Genesis is being interpreted to explain a psalm which is being interpreted to describe the greatness of Jesus. So this is saturated with the Bible. We need to pay attention to what uh, is going on in it. Now, I've, I've got two principles. In your notes, I put one principle. And, and I know a lot of you know this. I may be bringing coals to Newcastle, but all of us need to be reminded of it. Uh, The first principle of biblical interpretation is that the Bible is about Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself taught this in Luke 24 when he met up with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, and interacted with them and then revealed himself to them. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, one of the ways that a Jew would refer to the Bible is he would call it the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on in the chapter, appealing, appearing to all of the disciples later, Uh, He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, if you're really to be full-orbed in describing the Hebrew Old Testament, in fact, what's on the binding of a Hebrew scripture is the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms. So Jesus is describing that everything written about him in every portion of the scripture, and I would venture to say in every chapter and on every page of the Old Testament is about Jesus. So the question is, how does that happen? How is it that every part of the Hebrew Bible is about Jesus? Not just the explicit prophecies, but the narratives, the laws, even the poetry. How is that about Jesus? It would have been great to have been in that Bible study. Sometimes you get in these time machine games conversations. At what point in time would you love to be transported if you could be taken back to a certain period of time? I've often thought of this Bible study in Luke 24. 
when Jesus described these things to his disciples. Well, we have one example of how Jesus is in the Old Testament. Uh, played out pretty wonderfully uh, here in Hebrews chapter 7. So that's the first principle. The second principle, which I thought of after I sent in the discussion notes, is uh, that the general theme of the Bible is always from what God has done to what we're to do in response. I'll say that again. The general theme of the Bible is always from what God has done to what we're to do in response. And the reason that I mention that is because in the book of Hebrews... We are taking a deep dive into what it is that God has done. Uh, One of the commentators who writes, you know, probably the lightest, but uh, nonetheless one of the more delightful commentaries on Hebrews, uh, says that these chapters, 7 through 9, compose the hub of the book of Hebrews with regard to what God has done. He breaks up Hebrews to say the first six chapters are about the person of Christ, chapters 7 through 9 are about the work of Christ, And then from chapter 10 on, we have our response. Now, that's the general flavor of the Bible, and I think it's important to mention that and to underscore it. Uh, You really actually see this in a very clear way in Deuteronomy 5 and 6. The preface to the Ten Commandments, do you remember this? I mean, some people might say it's part of the first commandment, but I think that you could pull it out and say this is the historical prologue to the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the foundation upon which the Ten Commandments are then given to the people of Israel. First, what God has done, and then what the proper response of the people would be to what God has done. I've always been taken by the instruction that follows up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses says, when your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, and what parent has not heard this from his or her children? When your son asks you, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You know, the answer to the question, why all these rules, is we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. So that's just to say that the the first principle is that the scripture is about Jesus. The second principle is that there's always this flow from what God has done to our response. This morning we're in chapter 7. We're in the thick of this deep section about what it is that God has done. So with that, I'm going to go to point number two, which is the person and work of Melchizedek. Uh, And I haven't read the passage yet. So let me read it. And maybe you can pay close attention to it in light of that lengthy introduction. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So let's think about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is shadowy, he's mysterious. It's the only time uh, that he appears in the narrative portion of scripture. He's enigmatic. Uh, I'd recommend that you go back this afternoon if you have the habit of continuing your worship and read Genesis 13 and 14 to get a full flavor of his appearance. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation about Melchizedek through the centuries uh, in the church. Most of that detracts from our author's point. Uh, Melchizedek has been thought to be an angel, he's thought to be Jesus, he's thought to be the Holy Spirit. Again, all of that stuff distracts us uh, from what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate. He is a man, he's flesh and blood, the real man, and his name and description are loaded. He's a king, likely of Jerusalem, uh, although he's called the king of Salem. Jerusalem is not yet the city of David, uh, but he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. Uh, This resonates with other portions of the scripture. Uh, Like Solomon is described in Psalm 72 uh, as the forerunner of Christ, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Uh, We can also think about many places in the Old Testament uh, where the Lord is called the Lord of Righteousness. Uh, Righteousness is the foundation of his throne. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And then we, your mind might make a beeline to Isaiah 9 where in the prophecy the son that is to be born to us uh, the child that is to be given is to be called the prince of peace so righteousness, peace king, all of these things piled together to make Melchizedek a very significant personage but he's also a priest of the most high God is the way he's described I don't don't know if you've had interactions with priests Uh, they often have a bad reputation but many of them are very similar uh, to Presbyterian ministers. Uh, In the ancient Near East, uh, the priests stood before God in the place of the people. They mediated, they interceded, and they offered sacrifices. Uh, In Israel, uh, that's what the priests did. Jesus isn't called a priest anywhere else in the New Testament, but here in Hebrews. So it's good for us to pay attention to this. He sometimes, on one specific occasion, acts like a priest, In John 17, when he's praying what we call the high priestly prayer, he's acting like a priest, but he isn't called a priest anywhere except in the letter to the Hebrews. So Hebrews is unique if you're paying close attention. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 all call Jesus a priest or a high priest. Well, looking back in Genesis, you see that Melchizedek functions as a priest in two ways. Uh, He blesses Abraham, which is the right of the priest to do. 
If you remember that reading, he said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So that's his first action as a priest, and his second action as a priest is he receives the tithe. Now the writer here, you know, wants to underscore that point in terms of his greatness. Uh, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. To understand the import of this, you again have to appreciate just how important Abraham was, just how highly Abraham was esteemed by the Jews of the first century. Abraham was the patriarch of patriarchs. He was the foundation of their identity. He was the foundation of their community, of their nationality, of their race even. They were the children of Abraham. And to see Abraham, who had the promises, that's how great he was, to see him tithing to Melchizedek, if you're paying close attention, makes you stop and say, what in the world, what in the world is happening here? Well, the most important thing about Melchizedek then, according to this writer, is extrapolated by what is not said about him in Genesis. He does not have a genealogy. Now, why is that important? Because everyone of any importance in God's plan of redemption in the book of Genesis has a genealogy. Everybody's got one. In fact, the theme, the refrain of Genesis after the first four chapters is these are the generations. You can outline Genesis in that way. These are the generations. And there's a rigorous accounting of the genealogies. And here Melchizedek has no genealogy. And so the writer says there's some, there's some import in that. Let's pay attention to that. It's not that Melchizedek didn't have parents. Every human being has got parents. Every human being lives and dies, is born and dies. But in, Mel- in Melchizedek's case, none of that is mentioned And the writer says that's how he is a priest forever. His priesthood is an eternal priesthood. And so what he's getting to with these folks is that Jesus is a priest forever. He's a priest like Melchizedek by God's appointment. And it's an eternal priesthood. He's a priest forever, a great priest, a great high priest To the point that he's a better priest than any of the Levitical priests. He fulfills the meaning of the word priest. And that's something that we need to take take a step back and think about for a second. And we're um, kind of back to how the Bible is to be interpreted. It says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God in verse 3. It's not that Jesus resembles Melchizedek, but Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Melchizedek draws his significance from Jesus. And this opens up just a huge category. And again, it's where I think that the the notion, the introductory notion of Jesus gets us just barely, if at all, scratches the surface of who Jesus is. Um, Dick Lucas is a 
English minister, pastor, actually a priest because he's an Anglican. Uh, I don't think he's preaching anymore, but he uh, told this, uh, he gave this great illustration one time where he asks you to imagine, asks his hearers to imagine just the pure weirdness of being an evangelist in the first century. Uh, that you would go out and talk to your neighbors about Christ and you would say, you know, this is a new thing. Uh, you may even say we're part of a new religion. We're part of a new expression of the faith. And, and the neighbor would say, a new religion, eh? Uh, where are your temples? And the Christian evangelist would say, well, you know, we don't have temples. Uh, because Jesus is our temple. And then the neighbor would say, well, if you don't have temples, where are your priests? And the Christian would answer, well, you know, we actually don't have priests because Jesus is our priest. And then the neighbor would say, well, then how in the world do you get the sacrifices offered? Every religion's got to have sacrifices. And the answer, of course, would be Jesus is our sacrifice. That Jesus fulfills all of this stuff. And again, when we say that he fulfills these things, I think that you know, you can kind of, in a subtle way, misunderstand what's taking place. My old professor, uh, Ed Clowney, wrote a, a little article that I can find for you. I don't know if you can find it, uh, but it's called The Final Temple. And he has this line in, in there that, when I first read it, knocked me out of my chair. He said, you need to understand, it's not as though Jesus fulfilled the temple as much as it is that the temple was the pre-existent, Jesus is the pre-existent meaning from which the temple was built in the first place. Let me clarify that. It's not that Jesus fulfills the temple as much as he is the pre-existent meaning from which the temple was built in the first place. All of Israel's worship pointed to Jesus Christ. But all of Israel's worship came from Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit is looking at Christ and then turning and inspiring the writers of Scripture so that they would build a case in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, so as to make the appearance of the second person of the Trinity unmistakable. Now, of course, this took massive amounts of unpacking, and a lot of the great unpacking takes place uh, in the letter uh, to the Hebrews. That Jesus is the true and final priest. There wouldn't be any priests if it wasn't for Jesus and the way that he interacts with his people. And so it makes the, the thought that these objects of the letter to the Hebrews face, uh, it makes the, the thought that they are contemplating leaving Christ to go back to the safe confines of Judaism. I mean, in our world, it would be leaving Christ in order to go to the safe confines of unbelief. So crazy. So incomprehensible. You, you haven't understood yet who Jesus is. You haven't understood how monumental he is. Some of you may know that uh, when I was pastor in Cambridge, 
uh, we had a service in Portuguese uh, at which uh, many Brazilians attended. And as a result of that, I made several trips to Brazil. And my first trip to Brazil in Rio, uh, I went to that famous statue. I don't know if you've seen the statue. Uh, and I stood at the base of it, and I had my little digital camera to tell how old I was. This was cutting-edge digital camera, 1.3 megapixels. And I pointed that thing up and took a picture, and I put it on my uh, computer, you know, as the wallpaper, to remind myself how much I need a big Jesus. And a big Jesus is what's being described uh, here in the letter to the Hebrews. So what's that to us? Well, in some ways, it's self-evident, but it would be good for us to think about it again. Uh, You need a priest, and so do I. Uh, Your fears, your anxieties, your griefs, your woes all well up in the cry for a priest. You know, I think of Job in Job chapter 9 although he had a different goal in mind, but the way that he plaintively cries out for a priest, cries out for someone to intercede, cries out for someone uh, to stand in his behalf, resonates, it resonates. You need a sacrifice, and so do I, more than you know. One of my pastors, you may have heard of this, Jack Miller, uh, was famous for saying, cheer up, you're a whole lot worse than you think you are. I remember hearing him speak one time at a conference, and it was a conference put on by a couple of Christian psychologists who were renowned for the depth of their insight into the corruptness of the human condition. And uh, he said, if I were to meet with one of these counselors and he were to say, you know, you're a pretty big sinner... I would say I'm a whole lot worse than you know. It goes a lot deeper, much more profound. The wrongs that you and I do, the good that we fail to do, the functional gods of our lives, our misplaced desires, I think our negative emotions are often wonderful insights into our secret and undetected idolatries especially anger. I know that there's the possibility of righteous anger as a category, as a theory. I think John Stott said that if you ever experience a a truly righteous anger, it will probably be only once in your life. Uh, All of the rest of the anger gives evidence of the things that I'm worshiping instead of Christ. So we need a great priest We need a bigger priest than we know. And the way that Jesus is being described here meets that need. It fulfills all of it. Again, you've already been through chapters 3, 4, and 5. You know that he's described as being uh, sympathetic uh, to you. That's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, But here what's being described is something that that adds to that sympathy. Uh, We have this hymn that we sing. Maybe we can sing it next week. uh, That says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. 
So we see the sympathy early on in the book of Hebrews. You start to see the power uh, here in chapter 7. That he's a priest forever. uh, Just like Melchizedek was. This in fulfillment. This as a way of interpreting, explaining, understanding Psalm 110. Which we'll get back to uh, after the missions conference. So let's pray. Father in heaven, in your providence, uh, we hit this picture of Jesus as the great high priest in the line of Melchizedek on a day in which we uh, come to a table, uh, in which the priesthood of Jesus is on uh, particular display. Father, we are hungry, we are thirsty, and you promised that you would fill us up. Uh, You promised that we would be satisfied. Uh, So we simply pray that you would come help us take advantage of this good gift that you've given us and that you would grow us, that we would grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.